This is a Technicom podcast. Hello and welcome. Looking back at the various plans of action when the COVID pandemic struck, one of the best digital solutions involved contact tracing. This was a surefire way of using the power of technology to prevent the spread of COVID. But responsible innovation and engineering dictates that certain measures must be taken to prevent things like mass surveillance, data leaks and function creep. In this episode, we hit these issues head on and uncover how to mitigate the risks under such great time constraints. We will hear from two guest hosts through a special arrangement with the Alpen Adria University of Klagenfurt here in Austria to look at contact tracing in an age of data responsibility. Your student hosts are from the Master's Programme in Artificial Intelligence and Cybersecurity. Claudia Mausner and Nikita Soldatov speak with Carmela Troncoso, who is one of the key designers of the Exposure Notification Protocol, DP3T, which is widely used now in contact tracing apps all over. Let's have a listen. Hello, my name is Nikita. My name is Claudia. Nikita and I are students in the Master's Program of Artificial Intelligence and Cybersecurity at the Alpenadria University of Klagenfurt. Today we want to discuss contact tracing, which has been and still is a very hot topic in the COVID pandemic. We are especially interested in the principles of responsible engineering and data privacy. With us is Professor Camilla Troncoso of EPFL in Switzerland, who heads the Security and Privacy Engineering Lab. She was one of the key designers of the Exposure Notification Protocol DP3T, which most contact tracing apps are using. Welcome, Camilla, and thank you very much for taking the time for the interview. Thank you. I'm very glad being here. In order to get the pandemic under control, there was and still is a strong emphasis on contact tracing. In principle, manual contact tracing, which is carried out by the responsible health authorities by questioning infected people, can be distinguished from digital contact tracing via mobile apps, which is correctly referred to as proximity tracing. Both variants are usually applied in combination. As manual contact tracing alone quickly reaches its limits, the support by digital solutions has been promoted all over the world. And there is considerable data privacy risk associated with this. For example, the risk of mass surveillance, misuse of data, function creep or data leakage. This is why the need for responsible engineering processes that take exactly these risks into account is becoming increasingly evident. However, there is yet no unique definition of the term responsible engineering or responsible research and innovation, which is often used synonymously. One framework, which was developed in 2013, defines it as taking care of the future through collective stewardship of science and innovation in the present. It distinguishes the four dimensions, anticipation, reflexivity, inclusion and responsiveness. Anticipation, for example, aims at systematically considering all possible implications and risks of a newly developed technology. This also involves considering ethical and social aspects. The use of a proximity tracing app must not lead to discrimination against infected persons or people who decide not to use the app. 
Another very important principle is the one of inclusion. The entire development process should be open to the public and include as many parties and specialists as possible with different backgrounds and interests. More recent perspectives on responsible innovation still agree on these four principles, but also add transparency as a fifth principle. The topic also receives strong institutional support from the European Union and national organizations, and the discussion on the framework is still ongoing. Okay, so there is no clear definition of responsible engineering, but Carmela, uh, what does it mean to you? Would you say that the development process of GP3T protocol was a good example of responsible engineering? So I think that one one of the things that we actually had in mind uh, was already the description that Claudia gave, which is the future, thinking about the future and what this technology will become and how it will be used. And when we did that, we not only looked at the idea of data, like a lot of people focus on the application and the data, but we took a deep look also at the infrastructure, what kind of infrastructure we were putting on the world and how could it be reused. And what we tried to do is to minimize the ways in which this could be repurposed for other things, which meant that it can only be designed for the thing that we think is responsible to use and can, it cannot be used irresponsibly. However, let's go back to 2020, when several European countries were launching their own contact tracing apps. Germany, for one, has proved the most successful in terms of number of downloads among the other EU states, while, for example, Italy's start was not so spectacular. By the end of 2020, more than 24 million Germans had installed the Coronavirus app, and uh, that number keeps growing till now. Italian government stated that Immuni, which is the name of their app, would reach its full potential if 60% of the population between 14 and 75 years old would install it. Considering that only 16% or so, which is around 10 million, have actually downloaded it, skeptics would probably say that this app is a failure. But is the problem the app itself? One of the main concerns that Italian citizens had was that their sensitive information, such as health details or whereabouts, would be stolen. That might show a lack of interaction between the developers and the stakeholders. Italian citizens, as the final consumers of the app, were not part of the development process and were not well informed about the measures and technologies that are being used in order to protect their private information. On the other hand, Coronavirus app developers seem to be a bit more engaged in conversation with the public. Although Coronavirus app developers have also somewhat failed to deliver sufficient information regarding the security measures used to the public, in the end of the day, they managed to claim certain trust from users. However, some time ago, there was even a suggestion to introduce certain incentives for installing the app in order to boost the downloads. Nonetheless, the Coronavirus app has also encountered other problems as well, such as poor communication channels with testing laboratories, which also emphasizes the importance of collaboration between all stakeholders involved in the development, release and promotion of contact tracing apps. Okay, thank you very much, Nikita, for sharing this information with us. It looks like the download rates might be influenced not only by the choice of technology, but also by the level of transparency and collaboration between stakeholders during the design process. Camila, to what extent do you think it is important to involve public consumers, meaning the users of the proximity tracing app, in the development process of such an application? 
So that's very important. And some of the things that Nikita said now, uh, it's actually very real across the board in Europe. The fact that users do not really understand many parts of the protocol. I don't know if not much because they would not involve or a lot of it because privacy technologies are not really intuitive and very hard to grasp in general. The idea that we can give you a notification if you were with someone, not knowing with uh, with whom you were and who are you is something that people cannot handle. But I think that it was also a second part and it is also very important and was a, a, something that we were not very good at in the beginning, that there are other users of the app and those are the doctors and the contact tracers. And I think we failed also a lot in communicating towards them what is the added value of the technology and it caused a lot of uh, mismanaged expectations that also resulted in a lot of doctors telling people don't use it because it's useless and all of that didn't work very well. And I think that as technologists, uh, and I have to say also many governments in their public speech need to work much more on how to explain technology and not only think about citizens, but everybody that is on the chain, like from doctors to contact tracers that have to work with it. Because if not all of the stages work well, the app uh, doesn't work as, as much as, as we would have expected. Yes, you're absolutely right. It is rather difficult for normal people to understand the technical details and that might be why many are worried about data privacy. In this context, also the compliance with legal frameworks, namely the GDPR and national data protection laws, as well as human rights have to be considered. Specifically, Article 5 of the GDPR requires that processing of personal data shall be lawful, fair and transparent. Of particular importance in connection with contact tracing apps are the principles of data minimization, storage limitation, purpose limitation, integrity and confidentiality. As the collected data is concerning health, which is a special category of personal data, Article 9 is relevant as well. It requires the explicit consent of the data subject to collect and process data. Nikita, what would in general be good techniques in digital contact tracing to assure that the GDPR is enacted? There are actually various approaches towards providing a sufficient level of security in those apps. For example, apps may differ in the way they trace proximity. While some of them use Bluetooth proximity tracing, others track person's location via GPS. In the first method, phone transmits anonymous time-shifting identifiers to nearby devices. Those identifiers are then being saved in the contact history log. After that, in case a certain individual gets infected, everyone who came into proximity with them will get a notification suggesting that they undergo a COVID test. The evident benefits here are that this method does not record the location or identity of a user. However, this approach is not really applicable in case if the user has become infected by touching a surface an ill patient has touched. Another feature that may differ between apps is the place where they store the contact history log mentioned before, namely centralized and decentralized approaches. In a centralized storage method, each phone sends an anonymized ID plus identifiers gathered from other phones to a centralized database, which analyzes, gathers information and sends notifications to supposedly infected citizens. Anonymous ID, by the way, is basically created by a random number generator at each device and supposedly does not bear any data associated with the user. On the contrary, 
Decentralized storage method implies that a phone exchanges its anonymized ID with a central database, while each phone has its own local contact history log. Thus, the phone downloads the database and handles contact matching and alert sending without the server. Final question here is how does the app receive information about the person's COVID status? Some apps, for example, allow users to book a test through them so they would receive the result and inquire for permission to send an alert to their recent contacts. Otherwise, they would have to upload a photo, scan a QR code, or link their test result into the app using a code. Anyway, the permission from a user is mandatory to share their status with their contacts, although it will not reveal their identity. Carmela, what are the most important measures to protect data privacy in the protocol from your point of view? So. The, the main idea to protect privacy is to make all of this computation locally. But let me go back to this responsible engineering, right? What we really wanted to do is to make this impossible to reuse for other things. And that is the reason why we have it on the phone. Whenever we want privacy, privacy is not the goal. Privacy is the means to protect the users from further damage. So that is one of the things we did, like move everything to the phone so the server doesn't have but apps have many more protections to protect privacy. Uh, most apps actually have uh, dummy traffic. That means that whenever you upload and contact the server, it does not reveal whether you are positive for COVID and you're uploading your keys or not. And there are many other uh, mechanisms like this that ensure that no communication from the app will ever leak identities or health information about the users. Actually, it is notable that several major European countries, such as Switzerland, Austria, Germany, and Belgium, have either developed their contact tracing apps based on DP3T from the beginning, or switched to this protocol at some point after admitting its numerous advantages. Well, to me it looks like that the DP3T protocol is a great piece of security and privacy engineering. I'm sure this was not an easy task. So, which were the greatest challenges in the process and what are the main lessons learned from the development of the app? So, I think um, there, are two, there are two things, there are the technical and the non-technical. On the non-technical side, we have already spoken about this need to actually communicate with the stakeholders and the stakeholders are not only the final users, but anybody that is in the middle, including also to communicate with the developers of the app to make sure that they actually implement and implement all of these extra functionalities and these extra mechanisms that I said, that some of them are also non-intuitive and we many times had to correct them and work with them to make sure that timing information was not revealing anything, the traffic does not reveal anything. But the biggest, the biggest challenge was to actually deal with the mobile platform. Indeed, it was great that Google and Apple took our protocol and put it in their devices, mm -hmm. but it also meant that we had to play by the rules. And that meant that we have to play by whatever the phone does. And the phone is a device that works to save battery and to save processing. And that means that a lot of privacy-preserving mechanisms, like this dummy traffic I was talking about before, that has to run in the background and it has to take um, some battery from the phone, is not going to work so well. And uh, many of the privacy mechanisms that we design in theory will never work on a phone. And we need to work on either get rid of the constraints provided by Google and Apple or to work on a better mechanism, if you ask me, we maybe start, need to start thinking about how we remove power from those entities 
to actually create the responsible engineering that we want and not the one that they think is actually good. All right. Thank you very much, Carmelo, for taking the time to share these enriching thoughts with us. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to cover everything since this topic is so broad, but I'm sure that the ideas that we discussed today will definitely enhance public knowledge regarding the contact tracing apps. Thank you very much, Camilla, for the interview. Thank you, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Nikita and Claudia, and special thanks to the Alpen Adria University. See you next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Technicon.